Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion. In this episode, we chat with Jocelyn Swigger, professor of music, pianist, and mother of a middle school drummer. Jocelyn talks about her year of big life changes, 2010, and her current obsession with 19th century composer Agnes Turrell. This episode includes a clip of Jocelyn playing the first movement of Agnes Turrell's Grand Sonata One. You can find the full recording on our episode page. We're glad you're here. Hey, Jessica. Hi, Carla. How you doing? I am doing great. I'm sitting here in Central Oregon, awaiting your arrival and getting ready for a fun week together. So what's going on with you? You're back from California. I'm back for California. Um, I've had a very busy week of work. And one thing that was really crazy yesterday was I was at a Breakthrough Central Texas event, volunteering to give feedback for presentations of learning for 10th graders. And one of my friends who moved here recently from Chicago, I met her when she moved here, we were talking about um, our summer and through this chat, I realized that one of her very dear friends is Lisa Gregg, class of 86 or 87 from the Academy. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just so funny. She was like, wait, Albuquerque Academy, what year? You know? (laughs) And she said, Lisa's really involved with partners in health. Um, in oh. Chicago. And uh, anyway, it's just a small world. Well, spe- well, speaking of amazing graduates, we have a, a new guest on today, of course, and that is Jocelyn Swigger. And so maybe because you and Jocelyn were such close, close friends, and of course, I really loved Jocelyn as well, but maybe you want to tell us a little bit about what you remember about Jocelyn in high school. Jocelyn is one of those people who is brilliant at so many things. And I feel like we say that about many people in our class. Um, But her boundless curiosity about all sorts of esoteric topics and her willingness to do the work to get good at something, whether that's writing or obviously piano. She's a piano professor at Gettysburg College now. she and I just had a lot of silly time together in high school. And um, we also overlapped in elementary school too. We both went to Monta Vista for elementary school Um, and then, you know, reunited in high school. But she was one of my very dear friends in high school. She and I uh, were the servers at my father's 40th birthday dinner party. And we dressed as mimes, why did we do that? I guess so that we wouldn't have to speak to anybody, but we had like the whole mime makeup and berets. I don't know, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. Did you walk around pantomiming with your right. hands? This is the wall <laughs> and here is your chicken Kiev. I believe that she's been on sabbatical 
for at least mm. the last six months or so working on this project. And so um, we're going to get to hear about that research and some of the traveling she's done related to it. She has a son named Ben and mm. been in Gettysburg, I want to say for at least a decade. I think Ben was born there and he's in middle school. So it's probably 15 years now. Um, things Anyway, it's it'll be fun to hear what she's up to. That's great. Well, of course, what I remember about Jocelyn is she is was so serious and she was such a great pianist, right? And there was just sort of this like single-minded desire to do that professionally from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Like she played the piano. You and I took lessons and we were clowns. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she comes. And like she actually like was a real pianist. Hi. Hi, Jocelyn. <laughs> Hi. It's so great to see you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Jocelyn, it's so great to have you. I hear that you've actually heard a couple of episodes already. Oh my gosh. I have had the best time in the last week listening to you. So I, I've i been taking walks and hanging out with, you know, you and Mark Tafoya and Leah Lovett and Tommy Smith and Brad Bryan. I am all caught up. It's been fantastic. Great. I love it. I Thank you so much for doing this. And also, I completely love Jared Matt Greenberg's theme song. And already, like, I'm already having the podcast experience where, like, you plug in and you hear it and you're like, ooh, I'm about to be oh. in this world. Which it's, it's totally doing the thing. Awesome. It's so good. It's so great. So great to hear. And once again, it's so great to have you here um, on the Jessica and Carlos High School Reunion podcast. And as you know, we always start with a very simple question, which is, what have you been doing for the last 35 years, Jocelyn? Well, I've been doing a lot of music. I've been doing a lot of playing and teaching music, um, which also involves a lot of practicing and talking about practicing and thinking about practicing. Tons of reflection. Oh my gosh. Boy, do I do a lot of reflection. Lots of that. Um, I'm raising an amazing 13-year-old drummer who has zero interest in classical music, which is hilarious. And I am... Uh, co-parenting him very amicably with his dad in an arrangement that Jessica is 100% modeled on you and your family that I saw growing up. That's so cool. Um, And talk about that more, but it has been really wonderful to have that as a model. Like there can be a family where there's two separate families and the well-being of the child is clearly the most important thing and so everybody gets along and even enjoys each other because yeah so um for the many reasons that i'm grateful to your family Mm, jessica so neat (laughs) Um, that is a really big one um there have been some kind of worldview shifts i think which have been sometimes really challenging um and then your worldview shifts and then you kind of learn to live in the new normal, right? Um, my 40s were one big midlife crisis, no question. Um, with also like lots of really joyful moments in there, mm-hmm. right? But lots of, ooh, lots of midlife crisis. Um, lots of 
lots of trying to find my way, and I think I'm still working on this, but trying to find my way to the idea of enough. So that can mean um, abundance and scarcity, or it can mean work really hard and do the thing until you push yourself into the ground and then collapse. Um, or maybe find a middle way where I could like work a good amount. And then instead of collapsing, maybe I don't have to actually completely check out for so long. Um, so I think finding my way to that, there has been a lot of deliberately working to make peace with my body. Um, as a musician, I have to use my body the way an athlete does, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I do it wrong, I get hurt and I can't function. And so on top of all of the stuff about, you know, being a female in our particular culture and time, which has of course been a thing, there also has been a lot of um, just trying to figure out how I can use myself most effectively um, to play music and also to live in the world. I, oh, by the way, I'm a professor. I guess I should say, like, I'm a music professor. I teach piano, I play piano concerts. Um, I have some albums out. I, I am really fortunate to have music as such a central part of my life. I, I totally won the lottery about that. Yeah, I, I just, I have one <laughs> bone to pick with, with you, which is this idea that you've won the lottery. Um, because I think um, there's a difference between getting lucky and just really working hard and being successful in something because you have made good choices and you've also put <laughs> the 10,000 plus, 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 plus hours into something. And so while I love the idea of you thinking that you're lucky, I would, in sort of my, my perspective of you, think of you as someone who has just, since I knew you, which was freshman year, worked incredibly hard to get to this level of skill and to be able to yeah. do what you love to do. Um, you, you did that, <laughs> you know. Thank you. And I appreciate that. I do. I appreciate that. And I, but, but I also find that it is more, this is getting back to like, how do I use myself to be, to be at my best? Right. I find that it's actually um, more useful for my daily moment to moment life. I feel better if I feel grateful that I'm where I am than if I feel like, oh, I worked so hard to get here. I deserve everything and maybe even more. Right. Right. Like both can be true. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Really. <laughs> doesn't have to be a complete binary either. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Um, Appreciate yeah, you I up. agree with <laughs> that idea that you did work very hard for it. And my recollection from high school in particular is that you didn't always have the encouragement of your mentors or whoever was instructing you at that moment didn't always have the same belief in you that you ended up proving them wrong. And I mean, obviously, the balance of it was you had great mentors and great instructors. But along the way, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that everybody thought it was a slam dunk. You you were willing right. to say, well, that person may be doubting this choice that I'm making or this 
career that I'm choosing, but I really believe this is right for me. That's, it's really fascinating to hear you say that that was your person. Because, because, so Carla and Jessica, you both were my very good friends in high school. Jessica, especially, you listened to me yammer endlessly about everything that was happening with whatever was happening, right? So, um, so I know that you're talking from having heard me talk. <laughs> and um, I mean, I don't know, if, do we want to sure. talk about what? Uh, yeah. So, so basically I had a breakup with my piano teacher, um, which is a normal, like, this is a normal thing, right? Like at this point we've had lots of mentors and we've had, sometimes you have a really wonderful fit for a mentor. And then sometimes you have a difficult situation. Um, and my piano teacher and I broke up and I, she was a young teacher. I was a young student. Um, I absolutely see why I see if I can, it's very easy for me to see her mm. side now. Um, uh, and I think, I think it, I think that we didn't have to break up actually. Um, okay. Let's, well, let's just get into this. Okay, so. and, and mind you, I probably am remembering this because I felt protective of you as my friend. Like, oh, how dare she? Yeah. yeah. How, I can't believe yeah. Well, yeah. and I'll, and also it's really interesting, right? We have narratives that we tell ourselves at one point and then being able to look back at them and, you know, ask the question, like, what was my perspective? What was the other person's perspective? What's the true story somewhere in there? And of course, Jessica was getting a version of the story that you were downloading. We do that all the time, which may have had a lot of truth to it, by the way, I'm not suggesting it didn't, but you know, you know yeah, how yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, so basically what happened was, um, I had this idyllic 10th grade year where I was practicing so hard and I was getting all this great feedback. And I, and I really thought that I was going to be a concert pianist, which hi, I am a concert pianist, but I didn't actually know what that meant. Like I did, I, like, I really, I thought I was going to be famous and I was going to be on the Johnny Carson show and my music was going to make everybody happy and save the world. Like I really, really thought that was what was going to happen. Oh my happen. God, the Johnny Carson show. And, and and concert pianist that in and of itself is funny. Maybe it happened. I don't remember. Like, like I totally thought like that was that was what was going to happen. And um, <laughs> and then my the the summer between junior and senior year, I went to a big 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 music festival, and and I had gone to a small wonderful music festival where there were sixteen of us hardcore high school pianists, and that was amazing right? Like amazing, amazing. And it felt like, oh, we are going to be famous and our music is going to make the world better, right? Like six, I could be one of 16, that works. But then I went to a much bigger music festival right before senior year. And there were like 400 pre-college pianists. And, you know, I could do the math. And so I went into this really big depression. Like that was a really tough thing for me. Because I felt like, oh, I'm I'm actually not going to do this thing, and my music isn't going to make the world better for everybody, and this is just not this was not going to happen. Um, so I spent basically the whole. So I stopped practicing, is what happened. Because every time I tried to practice, I would cry. So that was no good. So I ended up like spending the entire summer in the library listening to Billy Joel's The Stranger album, and just like crying, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and um. And so my teacher, she didn't, 
quite know that this was all happening for me, right? And she didn't understand why I had, I had stopped practicing, but I went from this like really good student who would practice and get better every week, right? Like that's why we practice to somebody who just, I just didn't do what I was supposed to do. And there were a couple of particular tasks that she gave me that I did really poorly. Um, like she loaned me a score of hers with her particular fingering numbers written in, like which finger you choose to use on which key makes a huge difference in how you play something. And so that's a really valuable thing for a teacher to give to a student. And I just didn't copy them in for the next lesson to my own score because I was too like, I guess, depressed and crying or what, like I just didn't do it. And um, we did have a couple of conversations about that, um, but I don't think she hadn't, she was a young teacher. She was in her thirties. She hadn't navigated this kind of thing before. You know what I mean? And then, um, <laughs> so then there was this piano competition where the, some Russian youth orchestra was touring the United States and they were, they were doing this competition, like wherever they went, where they were going to have somebody play the Shostakovich second piano concerto with the orchestra. And the concert was going to be at our high school. Right. So I was like, obviously this is my competition to win. This is mine. This is mine. I'm going to do this. Um, except that it's hard to practice when you keep, every time you practice, you stop practicing because you're crying. So that doesn't work so well. And so the week before the competition, I went into my lesson. I totally had not learned the piece because I couldn't, like I wasn't practicing. I didn't learn the piece, like was not 100% not ready. And my teacher said absolutely correctly, you're not ready to, to enter this competition. Don't enter this competition. And for some reason, I had this idea that I could just make it happen in the moment and that I was going to be able to do it. And so I was going to enter the competition anyway. And I said, I really want to enter the competition. And she said, this is one of these pivotal moments, right? She said, well, if you enter this competition as my student, don't come back unless you win. And of course I didn't win. I was totally not ready. I played really well for the first few few pages and then I had a giant memory slip and was totally not ready and the judges said um they like they even basically said like how long have you been working on this and I told them whatever it was it wasn't as long as it should have been um I mean it wasn't as long as it should have been to learn it and um and they said and what does your teacher think about you entering and I said well she she really thought I wasn't ready and they said, well, we don't have to tell her. So then I was like, okay, now I know I didn't win and I can't go back. And I think probably if I had gone back and had said, I didn't win, I'm so sorry, I've learned my lesson, let me try and practice, probably things could have worked out, right? But, but I felt like that wasn't available. Um, and I will say that I can't regret that now at all because because even though she was an incredible teacher and boy, I could have used, I, I could have used a few more months with her. She was wonderful. And I still absolutely use what she taught me with my students and in my own practice. Um, but I think that if I had continued working with her, I wouldn't have had the path that I've had 
um, it's the sort of thing where you like, you can't wish for any big changes before you had your kids, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't know that I would have gone to grad school where I did if I had studied, if I had continued with her in high school. And grad school is where I met Ben's dad. And so that, like, there's no wishing for that to be different. I didn't think I was going to tell any of that story at all. Oh my gosh. Well, first, first of all, it was an amazing story. And I loved hearing every morsel of it. And may we all have some pivotal stories in our lives like that, that teach us lessons, that cause us to go in a particular direction. You know, those sliding doors moments, right? Where if we had done one thing, the whole course of our life might've been different. But I'm curious, I yeah. may, have you ever reached out to that teacher ever? Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I stopped in and had a really lovely afternoon with her when I was, I think, probably like late mm -hmm. in college. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I got tenure, I sent her a message and thanked her for having taught me because I really appreciate like that she was part of my journey. And when I recorded the Chopin Etudes, I reached mm -hmm. out to her and said, thank you so much for inspiring me to do this. So, um, and so, and we're, we're on Facebook, although I'm really not on Facebook very much. Um, so I absolutely feel healed and connected, but, but we're not like in so touch all the time. Yeah. You're a teacher now. Yeah. What yes. do you take <laughs> from that experience that, affects the way you approach students who are struggling? Well, I try really hard not to give people ultimatums and I try not to use always and never. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, I think that I, I think that I tend to, to err a little bit on the side of being the teacher who is too compassionate and too easy rather than the side than the teacher who is is too harsh mm -hmm. and too demanding um i think probably i could be a little bit more demanding of my students sometimes although i think in the last few years there's plenty of evidence that that's not what people need right now and 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 there certainly have been more experiences like that that have that that have made me think about that i mean for whatever reason, I have tended to really learn a lot and do really well with teachers who are incredibly demanding and scary. <laughs> That's why you like um, Mr. O'Connor and thrived under him. And I wanted to hide under my desk and could not write a word without a deadline yeah. looming over my head. I did. I did love Mr. O'Connor and I also loved Dr. Wong, right? Like they, and they both were terrifying. Um, yeah. I mean, they were, they were. Um, and I certainly have had, I've had some, there are some scary music teachers out there and I have certainly worked with some of them. <laughs> um, but that's not, that's not the kind of teacher that I am. Um, well, and I think, Carla, I'm curious yeah. about the idea that when we teach, because you've been in education for mm -hmm. years, there's a certain amount of, you just have to make the craft fit your personality. 
And so mm-hmm. somebody else might be able to very effectively be the hard ass, you know, you rise to this expectation or you don't come back. I, I can't imagine myself being that kind of teacher. Do you see people in education generally, Carla, who kind of can switch? I think most people come into teaching and they teach the way they've been modeled teaching or they think about their favorite teachers or the ones that have had the most impact on them. So that could be the hard asses or the, you know, the empathetic souls. And I think they really start usually by modeling themselves in some way, shape or form after some role model. And then they realize it doesn't work. They can't be that person. And then they find who they are. But it takes a little bit of time. And of course, it is a practice. It's not some perfect, you know, you had to practice, practice, practice to become a good educator, facilitator, whatever. And you sort of find that signature presence that you have and what works for you. And you continue to tweak that and learn about it and see what's effective as you move forward. And that's Mm -hmm. what I've seen with really great teachers. And the more we try to be something that we remember, we're not authentic to who we really are. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I will say also that I have this incredible um, luxury in my teaching, which is that most of my teaching is Mm one-on-one. So I can really, you know, in the piano lesson, I, I can really try to tailor what's happening to the student. And there are some students who who really want, like, tell me what to do, give me the specific thing and be mad if I don't do it. Um, and sometimes I'll even say to the student, do you wanna just have a top-down lesson today? Mm. Where like, and that means they do the thing and I say, no, do it again with this different. No, do it that. Yes, that was right, do it again, no. And those lessons can be so, so, so fun and really energizing. Um, but but they can also come from a place of, of kindness mm-hmm. and respect you're opting in um, for that that day yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i have yeah. a, a different <laughs> question about that story i'm imagining you okay. crying and not practicing and it just being so different from the way you were the years and months before and i'm thinking yeah. as a what would what were your parents thinking or doing in that moment. Because today, if I saw my child completely withdraw from the things that gave them joy, cry, seeming totally lost, I mean, imagine Mm -hmm. the specialists and the interventions and the anxiety and how parents, I mean, you could see how parents these days would probably be very would involve themselves and feel like that was uh-huh. their job. Uh-huh. What did your yeah. What were your parents doing in all of this, if anything? Or were they like, <laughs> you're capable, you'll figure it out? I, I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, one thing was that I didn't practice at home mostly at that point. I mostly practiced in practice rooms at UNM, the, the university. And, um, so it might be that a lot of the crying and the crises were happening when I was in a room by myself. So it might be that they didn't see it, not because they were willfully ignoring it, but just because I, mm-hmm. I don't know. 
my mom would have been the one who would have been more likely to be involved with what was happening. Um, and that's just one of the things I would love to ask yeah. her about. Yeah. You and I both lost our moms and there are so many times in life now where I think it would it'd be so nice to say, you know, how would, what happened back then? So now that I'm going through menopause, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, so. Oh my gosh. You I, I definitely, uh, I empathize with that. That feeling. I know. Stuff. I know. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like they were very involved in it. It sounds like you navigated that time um, with guidance support from other people and then from your own knowledge of yourself and what you wanted to do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you would certainly be part of that support system. Absolutely. So uh, thank you for that in case that hasn't come up. <laughs> I remember when I could not get myself to start working on my college application and Jocelyn sat in my bedroom and hand wrote my words as I was speaking them to get me out of the writer's block that I was in. And that's amazing. Wow, that, amazing. That was so helpful. So, so, you know, awesome. it's, it, it all evens out. So, yeah, I do not remember that at all. So, <laughs> so Jocelyn, I'm curious, you know, um, you talked about that as like a really significant inflection point. And of course, that was back, yeah. you know, that was really way back. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. if there have been a, a couple of other world defining moments, either in your career yeah, sure, sure. or your personal growth. Um, maybe you can tell us a little sure. bit about what happened yeah. after that. Sure. So um, I left. So I, 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 I really decided at that point, um, I am clearly not going to be a concert pianist and make the world better with my music. That's not going to happen. But I really like playing piano. So I'm going to keep playing in college. So I went to Oberlin and did a double major in the, the conservatory and as an English major too. And that was a perfect fit for me. It was really, really, really good. Um, and also really hard, right? Like there it's college. You're crying a lot. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. No, but I want to just say, yeah, I, I mean, Kraslin, the fact that you went to Oberlin is, you know, it, it just speaks to the fact that like you were not, you, you were, you were definitely a su supremely talented hardworking pianist because you don't go to Oberlin and be part of the conservatory without that. So I was, I was there and I really thought I'm not gonna be a professional pianist, but I like to play. And then I discovered collaborative playing where I was playing with other people and I loved mm. that. So then I started playing with everybody else and that was great. And then my junior year, I went abroad with the English program and spent a semester in London and it was amazing. Um, we were going to, I think, four plays a week like you read the play in class and then you go to the play and then you discuss it the next day I mean unbelievable and lots of like French theater too so probably one of those four was French but anyway and I was living in one of the great world cities for the first time which was incredible and 
So here we come back to apparently the theme of the day. Um, I was crying all the time because I only had access to a piano four hours a week. And if you only have access to a piano four hours a week, every time you play, it feels really rusty and awful and like you can't play. And it was awful. Like it, it felt like missing a romantic partner. Like it, I don't mean that in any kind of creepy way, but like, it just felt like <laughs> I missed this part of myself that I cannot handle being without, you know? Um, and so, so that semester was really, really important for me because I thought, well, this is obviously, this is not going to work. Like I can't live my life without playing piano like this. So I better switch my thought thinking from, oh, I'm not going to be a professional to, I better really practice and really get good at that. So, so that was a really, really important shift for me. So then after college, I went and freelanced in New York City for a year and was just absolutely broke. Like I would do an accompanying gig up at Manhattan School of Music, which is like 120 something street. And then I would walk down to my telemarketing job at Carnegie Hall on 57th Street to save the subway fare. Um, and I slept on the floor and rented an upright piano. Like I was broke. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, but I also was really feeling that I can't do at the piano what I want to be able to do. Like I just can't physically make my body do what I want. Right. And I knew that um, if I studied with a teacher that I did study with in grad school, I, I, I had worked with her some previously and I knew that she could really help me, that she, she explained things in a way that made sense to me and was really good. So then I went to um, Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York for a master's degree. But I was absolutely certain that I was just going for two years. I'm just going to grad school to get my technique the way I need it to be. And then I'm coming back to New York I'm going to be a vocal coach. I mean, I wanted to play for, especially play for singers, like opera singers and Broadway singers. And I'm sure that I could have done that. Like, I'm sure I could have made that happen. So towards the end of my master's degree, I walked into my piano lesson one day and my teacher said, there's a sabbatical replacement job if you want it. And so I spent a year teaching at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, right after my master's degree which was so nice to come back to the Southwest. Mm, it's beautiful there too. Really, it's so gorgeous. So beautiful there. And um, really supportive community. It was, it was the perfect first job for me. Um, and so that was like giant neon sign in the sky that says Jocelyn, be a college <laughs> professor. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, I guess I have to go get a doctorate. So then I went back to, so I went back to Eastman and did get the doctorate. Um, and that was really fun. I mean, I, I loved, I loved being there, um, and just working really, really hard with a bunch of other people who were working really, really hard and good at the thing. And like, it's just fun. Um, anyway, so then I utterly failed to find employment after that. <laughs> and I went back to New York city and freelanced there. And that was a way better experience than the first time. Um, partly because I was living in Brooklyn and I had friends, which I had not had the first time around. Uh, first time around, all of my friends from college moved to Boston and I moved to New York. So I was like, that sucks. 
but this time I had a bunch of friends who lived in my neighborhood and I had as my sort of anchor day job, um, I was doing ticket services for the Brooklyn Philharmonic at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which is kind of like Lincoln Center, but avant-garde and it's in Brooklyn. And so I had a BAM ID, which meant that I could go with a friend for free to anything that wasn't sold out. And so for two years, I lived in Brooklyn and it was like getting another graduate degree of just going to every incredible avant-garde performance. Um, and then if I liked something, I would go see it again, right? Because I could. So, you know, go see this weird Shakespeare production. That was cool. I'm going again tomorrow night. Unbelievable. That was, that was fantastic. Um, anyway, so I, I was, but I still knew that I wanted to be teaching in a college and teaching piano in a college setting. So I applied for everything, um, but started being a little pickier about what I applied for. And um, then I got this visiting position at Gettysburg College, where I am now in Pennsylvania. And I have been here in this little town in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, since 2004. Four, wow. if you can believe it. Amazing. Um, 19 years? Here I am. It's like, yeah. isn't that insane? That's pretty great, though. Yeah. So I have lived, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else because we moved to Albuquerque when I was five. So it's, that's really strange to me. Um, but I love my job. I love the, I love the college. The campus mm -hmm. is beautiful. It is a cool place. I love, colleagues are great. Um, so those are some of the main inflection points. And then there was the whole midlife crisis of the 40s, but that's probably enough. Well, before, before we get into the midlife crisis, and, and we don't have to get into it if you don't want to, but I would love to hear more about your current focus in your work. I know that you mm. are passionate about this female composer. And I want to hear, I want to yes. hear what's going on with that and how you found her. Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, Agnes Tyrrell, T-Y-R-R-E-L-L -L, is the name of this composer. And I am madly in love, you guys. Like this music is so beautiful. The piano writing is amazing. It's really emotional and cinematic and hard because I'm a dum-dum and I'm always falling in love with hard things. But she was this monster player and wrote this like just unbelievably gorgeous music. Um, and I'm working now on editing a set of her 12 etudes, like study pieces. When was she composing? Um, that for Oh, yeah, let me back up. She lived from 1846 to 1883. So like 1860s, 1870s, mostly. She lived in Brno, which is about halfway between Prague and Vienna. Um, so it's in the Czech Republic, but it was really part of Moravia. Mm. So very much German her language. Um, I'm brushing up my German on Duolingo now. So that's very fun. Um, so Agnes, um, she got this incredible training and had this incredible family support, which was really, really rare for women composers at that time. And there were, there were women composers. There were so many, there, there were so many women composers. 
And there were a lot who had great training and great family support, but there were also a lot who had, who, who were sort of consistently squashed. And then they wrote just a few small pieces, right? So had they been really nurtured in their composition, instead of told to go sweep the floor, which happened, they would have really probably written enormous outputs, um, but they just didn't. But so for Agnes, her family, um, she had a teacher outside of the house from age six, which wasn't usual. Usually people would study with their mom until they were older. And then if they were serious, they would study with somebody else. Um, and she was a really active part of her local community. She had a great mentor there who um, had his choir perform a bunch of her compositions. She was positively reviewed in her town. Um, but she had some health problems, so she wasn't able to tour and, and really make a big splash. And so that's partly why we haven't heard of her. She didn't publish very much. And how did you um, find her work? Yeah, so I found her work because I picked up the Norton Dictionary of Women Composers, which was published in, I mean, there's a, that is a thing, right? Like in 1990, we graduated from high school in 1989. I had no idea there could be a woman composer. Like I really had no idea. I thought, I, I was certain, I wish I were certain now, but I was definitely certain that we were going to see a woman president in my lifetime. Like, I didn't even question that. Um, but, uh, like, the idea of a female composer was so mm. not on my radar, I didn't even know to think that it wasn't possible. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just absolutely not, not a thing.
That is so amazing that you say that because I have never made that connection or thought about that until right now. And I played, you know, music for a long time, not like you did, obviously. In fact, I was the opposite. I just never practiced and never got any better and it was fine. Um, But but I only played men. Yeah, that's right. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so, um, so there's this whole question, right? Not question, but um, there's this, there's a, there's a giant, there's a, there's a giant outpouring of interest and information about women composers right now, which is so exciting and so incredible to see. And I actually think that Agnes is maybe better than a lot of the other women composers. I don't, so I'm really thinking about, I'm really trying to be thoughtful about, do I present her as a woman composer, which is, it is true, right? She is a woman composer and it is really inspiring to hear that and think, oh my gosh, this was written by a woman, right? But also I, in my explorations of music by women, um, something that I've really tried to have as a sort of North star about that is I don't want to play any music that wouldn't excite me if it were by the famous guys. Right. So like, like Schubert to pick a random composer. I love Um, Schubert wrote a whole boatload of songs about 600. They're great. I love them. Some of them I love more than others. And so if I find a song that's by a woman, I only want to play it if I would be excited to play it if it were by Schubert, Mm -hmm. right? Or somebody like that. So all of Agnes's music that I have been finding and playing, um, I just feel like it totally stands up. It totally stands up. I have spent my life as a pianist in conversation with geniuses when I practice, right? Like I've been playing music by and Beethoven and Brahms and Schubert and Chopin for sure and Mozart and Haydn and like all Debussy, Prokofiev, I mean really great, great, great musicians and when I play this music it it absolutely feels like it's on that level and I'm not saying that she's Beethoven or Mozart or Bach, like nobody is Beethoven (laughs) or Mozart or Bach but but boy I think she I think she lines up with a lot of other really 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 good players anyway so i'm madly in love with their music it's so gorgeous it's so awesome um i got to go to the czech republic and visit her archive in may which was incredible um i didn't know what i was gonna i didn't know what i was gonna find right like i didn't know if the archive was gonna be a cardboard box that's all dusty so you were asking about how i found Mm -hmm. how i found her um how i found her So coming back to the idea of wanting to play music that's really, really, really good, not just music that happens to be by a woman, right? So I was flipping through the Norton Dictionary of Women Composers, and I found this entry about her that said that she had published a set of 12 etudes, study pieces, Mm. dedicated to Franz Liszt, who was the most famous pianist, maybe of all time, certainly of her time, and that he had praised them and suggested some fingerings for them, Mm -hmm. fingering numbers, like here's which finger should be on which note. And so List was somebody who didn't have to practice, 
Like he was this total freak of nature who could play something once and then he had it memorized, which is obnoxious. <laughs> like, yeah. Are you sure it's not anyway. just a sandbagger? We had some of those people who always play made it study. <laughs> and then you know that they actually yeah. studied. <laughs> no, but he might have failed, but do you know what I mean? Like so so for him to get this random collection from this random unknown composer and bother to write back with fingerings mm-hmm. means that he really engaged with mm-hmm. it. Right? So I thought I thought, boy, I bet that's interesting. So then I just started Googling her every once in a while. And there was nothing and there was nothing. And then this Leipzig pianist, Kira Stekove, published a set of Agnes pieces. And Kira did this beautiful edition. I mean, it's gorgeous, um, her edition. And she, but she didn't do the, she didn't do the etudes. And she did a, the book of shorter pieces. And then also um, she did a version of uh, an edition of Agnes's Grand Sonata, which is a total flipping masterwork. It's so good. Um, and I got to do the US premiere of that in February. And I'm going to record it probably in a year, maybe in two years, because I want to do it with some of the etudes. I'm not sure how long those are going to take. Um, anyway, so so any, Kira didn't do an edition of the etudes. And I was able to get um, manuscripts of Agnes's etudes. Here, I know that this is radio, but just would you just please ooh and ah at how clear her handwriting is? <laughs> no way. <laughs> like you can actually see what right. she intends. That's cool. So so it's really incredible to feel that Agnes left her music to a friend who left her music to the archive in the library, and then a bazillion years later where we now have technology and the internet and like now is the time that we can actually make Agnes's music come to life. It's incredible. And I really feel like working on Agnes's music, um, it brings so many other threads of my life. Like I, I feel like I sort of understand that many things were leading me towards this, although I didn't know that at the time, obviously. Like I played a lot of new music when I was in grad school which involves a lot of you're learning the language of the composer mm-hmm. at the same time as learning the, the actual piece, right? So I've done a lot of that. I can do that. And also when I was in grad school, a lot of times those scores would be handwritten. So I certainly have played from handwritten scores, although not recently. Um, so there was that. And I, I feel like um, feminism has been a really big and important part of my life and my worldview. And it's really wonderful that I found something that can connect with that. And I've really wanted to um, inspire other people, especially younger people. And I feel like playing Agnes mm-hmm. can do that. And there, there's just, there's something really, I mean, something that I, that I say in my concerts that I really believe is that I'm, I'm playing this music in a spirit of radical optimism because its existence proves that what is possible is way more than we imagined, mm-hmm. right? It's always been way more than we imagined. And I am so thrilled that I have found this, this project. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have a long-term plan. Um, Agnes was born in 1846. So I want to make her famous by her bicentennial in 2046. All right. 
I want her to be well enough known by 2046 that when it's her bicentennial, there are little Agnes festivals all over the world mm. that I did not realize. <laughs> right? Like I just wanted to be up. You're like her agent. So You're like her modern agent right now. I, I love it. I, 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 I totally am. Yeah. I, I really am making myself her champion. Um, I'm not her only champion. I mean, Kira in Leipzig is really doing a lot and it's incredible. Um, but I'm certainly one of, one of the Agnes champions and I'm, um, I'm starting to play some of her music in concert. Um, I'm going to be playing the Sonata, which is so incredible. And as many of the etudes as I can get going and some of the shorter pieces in house concerts, Ooh. like house parties in the next, um, several months and year. So if anybody listening, and I'm not kidding, if anybody listening wants me to come and play for a small select group of people who would be excited to hear incredibly beautiful 19th century music by Agnes. Do you, do you by any chance have any recordings of yourself playing? I can get you something. Yep. Cause it would be really fun to hear a little bit of it yeah. and you playing yep. preferably. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and absolutely. I'm thinking I that for sure, at our reunion in 2024, we'll yeah. we'll have a concert. Yeah, I love it. I would love I would love to do an Agnes concert at okay. our reunion. Um, but I think if we do that, we also need to have some other concerts at our reunion because boy, are there a lot musicians. of other great musicians mm -hmm. in us. Yeah. So Chris Bosen. Matt Greenberg, I know. Um, Brad, Brad can produce, you know, he, Brad can do all the sound for us. <laughs> on the board. Yep. Okay. Yep. I, I like this idea. Yep. All right. Well, here's the thing. I want to hear about the midlife crisis because I'm thinking you have wisdom <laughs> that is really yeah. not to share, but I also want to save some time for the rapid quick flash round. Yeah. So yeah. Um, let me, let me do quick midlife crisis. Perfect. Okay. So, so in 2010, I got tenure and um, my mom died and I became a mom. So my whole world shifted in these really, 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 really big ways. And I decided that the thing that I was going to do to address it was going to be to learn all of the Chopin etudes. Yeah. Um, as you know, thank you so much for your Kickstarter help. That was incredible to have that feeling of community while I recorded them. Um, and so I did. And I thought it was going to take two years. I was like, I'm going to learn the Chopin etudes. I'll start working on them while I'm on maternity leave. It'll take about a couple of years and then I'll be done. <laughs> yeah, no. So <laughs> it took seven. Um, and while I was working on them, um, and they were really hard. Like I, they were just, that's all I'll say about that now. They were really hard. Um, while I was working on them, I developed um, some health issues, including tendonitis, carpal tunnel syndrome, oh thoracic outlet syndrome, like basically just like everything bad that can happen to your entire upper body was happening to my entire upper body, partly because of, of the way that I was playing, which was not good, partly because I was carrying my baby, and that's not great for your arms. And partly because I had a fibroid tumor the size of a butternut squash that weighed more than five pounds that was pressing up against my spine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so uh, that was a whole lot of fun. Um, so I was in a lot of physical pain 
for a lot of my 40s, like just sort of physical pain as a normal thing. Don't recommend it. Um, I did have, I, I did have the fibroid out. Fortunately, it wasn't cancer. Um, PSA, it's unbelievably common for women to get fibroids, to get fibroid cysts. Like it's so common that there's, I think it's maybe two thirds of women over 60 have them. Like totally, totally, totally common and totally, totally, totally common for the doctor and the initial appointment to say, well, we can't say it's not cancer. So it ends up being this like really scary thing that you think, oh my gosh, I'm having this whole mortality thing that is actually really common and it's probably going to be fine. Anyway, um, so, you know, uh, my marriage was also ending at that time. And like everybody, I've always uh, really physically internalized emotional things that are happening. So I think that had a lot to do with all the, the, the upper body pain stuff happening. Anyway, I just had this whole like explosion of, oh, I think I'm about to die. Okay, I survived. Wait, what do I do with my life? What's happening? Um, there was a whole lot of listening to, you know, Florence and the Machine for a while. <laughs> it was like, it was really so much incredibly strong mm -hmm. feeling. Um, so that, that was a whole thing. And then, um, and then I had a, I was taking care of my aunt who lived in New York and she was complicated and then had dementia. And so that was very, very stressful in a lot of different ways, but that was really coming to a head in the, in the, in my forties. Uh, she, she died right before the COVID, but right before the pandemic started. And I'm so grateful that she mm. didn't live in the pandemic because it, it would have been impossible. There just were all of these like emotional, physical stumbling blocks that happened over and over. And, and man, the forties were tough. Um, yeah. Had a radical hysterectomy, you know, like I totally have been in menopause for like five years. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's my midlife crisis of the forties. That That's here we are. <laughs> and, and now how, and now you feel, how are your 50s? So far, they're way better. <laughs> I mean, look, life can throw all sorts of curves at us. Yeah. You know, you never know. You never know what's going to happen, right? Um, but I feel really, so I feel good. So aside from your work and your drummer, Ben, <laughs> who you are parenting, <laughs> what are you doing that brings joy into your life. Yeah. Um, I do yoga. Mm. I do yoga online just about every morning. And I have this really wonderful, small, hardcore group of yoga friends who do yoga together um, twice a week. We have a teacher who is a former Cirque du Soleil clown. Oh, fun. So he has this whole for really long and then tells us terrible jokes while he's doing it. It's the best. Um, I learned how to stand on my head to do a, like a tripod headstand at age 50. Come on. I'm super proud of that. Um, and I just really like doing tree pose when there's trees. Like we meet in the park in the summer and it's gorgeous. I love it. Um, it's very beautiful where I live. Mm. It's really easy to go on walks and see trees and nature and horizon. And um, so I like doing that with friends or with podcasts or whatever. 
Um, I read, I watch Netflix like everybody does. Um, I journal. Yeah. Awesome. And I also really love, like, I do actually really love teaching. Like, it's really fun. Your students so, are yeah. so lucky to have you. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm lucky to them too. Sounds amazing. All right. Well, shall we do? Well, should we go back in time? I think we should go back a in little bit. now. Yeah. Lightning yeah. round. Lightning round. Oh, this was so amazing, though. I just want to say learning about you and about everything that's gone on in your life, the highs and the lows. And you've always been an insatiably curious person and a, mm. just a, a, a professional learner, which I think are actually the best teachers or the best learners, too. So thanks so much for sharing all of that with us. And now we'll go back in time and see what you remember a little bit about your time at, um, in high school. Real quick, when you think about yourself back in high school, is there something that you that you really remember about you, like how you perceived yourself before we get into the, the flash round? Um, I think that we already kind of talked about it. I mean, I felt like I was a classical music nerd. I also loved a bunch of other music. Um, I certainly felt like the poor scholarship kid. So I had quite a bit of anxiety about like, Am I wearing the right thing? Um, but I also sort of figured out, like, I'm obviously not going to be wearing the right thing. So whatever. <laughs> like, I, I think I, I, yeah, I, I think I felt really safe in high school. I had a rough time in junior high school um, and was just so happy at school that, like, even if people thought I was lame, they weren't going to shove me into a locker about it. You know, like it just was sort of. I remember but, you talking yeah. about that when you came to our school in ninth grade. And you would say, mm. I am so sheltered here. This is not like the real world. And I am so glad about that. <laughs> yes, I was in ninth grade. I knew so knew much, about, so much the about, about the real world. But you knew enough to know. That you were happy to be sheltered from some of the things that were out there that you'd experienced previously. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Um, I think I'll kick us off with the lightning round. Okay. Let's do it. Who was your high school crush? Well, so freshman year was obviously Jared Matt Greenberg. Like 100%. And I have to say that when I got to play piano at his wedding to Leticia a few years ago, I felt like I won high school. It was the best. It was just like, it, I'm so happy for him. And that crush ended like, well, ninth grade. But uh, like, it, just, it was awesome. Um, so that was ninth grade. But then the summer before 10th grade, I went to Hummingbird Music Camp as a counselor in training. And I met a piano teacher there who was a piano student at the university. Oh, gym. I remember this. And I was just gone. I was just gone. And it was, you know, there's a lot of ways that could have gone really badly. Right? Like, it was completely obvious. Like, I just lit up. My mom would say that I used to light up like a Christmas tree when he was around. Um, but he was a really nice guy. 
and also totally uninterested in me. And also I was 15. Like there's a lot of reasons that he was not interested in me. But I think the main one was that he was not interested in me. Um, but but still, had he not been such a nice guy, that could have gone really badly in a lot of ways and could have really, mm. really messed me up. Um, but instead, I, <laughs> I had this almost like celebrity worship feeling about him where I just felt like he would never, ever, ever look at me. So I'm so lucky that I get to be in his, be his friend and be in his presence sometimes. And isn't it wonderful that I live in this world with all of these delightful things that sometimes he gets to experience or I get to tell him about. Um, but I'm so, I'm so grateful for him to being, for being so nice to me and so kind to me. So funny. Um, yeah, that was, that was my high school crush. Okay. So question two, and you know, we all benefited from the food, the culinary talents of Loy Lagore. So quick question, veal birds or munch pudding? Discuss. Oh, I can actually clear up something that you've been wondering about on the podcast, what? which is that veal birds were over by ninth okay. grade when I came. They were over. The only time I've ever had a veal bird was the one that Mark Defoya made oh. when he did that incredible spread at our reunion. Okay. okay. Anyway, that's my answer. Okay. <laughs> What clothing brand did you rep in high school? I'm going to say thrift store desperately try to pass. <laughs> but do you remember? <laughs> I had four matching pairs of beret and glove combinations. <laughs> and I used to wear them like every day. I had Love a it. blue one. I had a red one, I had a tan one, and yes, I had a raspberry one. And Ooh. I okay. I remember the beret, but I did not remember that there were matching gloves. Oh, okay. there were matching gloves. Oh yes. That is that oh, sounds yes. like a signature. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Um, so what car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its demise? Okay. I did not learn how to drive until the summer after we graduated from high Amazing. school. Amazing. I did not know that about you. I, I did not. You're, you're actually a, you're a woman ahead of your time because now kids don't learn to drive. And so now you were ahead of your time. <laughs> so I will say that when we have a reunion, where whenever it is, I will be so happy to give people rides with whatever my <laughs> rental car is because I was constantly needing a ride. Like I just always needed a ride all True. the time. And I now, when I go to Albuquerque, I love it. I love giving people rides. It makes me so happy. So anybody who needs a ride, our next <laughs> reunion, hit me so up. So just quick, how did you get to school in the mornings? Did, yeah. did you get carpool? Did you so, have a... Um, so freshman and sophomore year, Kristen Niskell drove me from the class ahead yeah. of us. She's wonderful. That was great. And then actually junior and senior year, beloved, amazing John Gray drove me Aww. to school. Which was so, so kind and, and so above and beyond and just lovely and important mentor but also i think we mostly just listened to npr but it but yeah so kind and then the way i got home was i either tried to hound people for a ride or i took the bus mm -hmm. 
I took the bus. Mm-hmm. I would walk over to Wyoming and I would stand there and wait. And then I would take the bus down to the university where I would do my lessons. Oh, for, yeah. um, That's so awesome. Practicing or mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Happy to give a ride. When you think about high school, is there a song or a band that stands out to you from that time? I can't pick one song or one band. And do you remember, Jessica, you had a tape, a mixtape. Carla, maybe you made it, but I think Jenny Tong made it. And on one side of it, it was called happiness exclamation point. And on the other side, it was called songs which express loathing of oneself. <laughs> we were not dramatic at all. That was definitely not me. I, I didn't have that dark no. side. There were a bunch of you who liked to sit and listen to sad yeah. music. That was not my was Jenny Kung. So anyway, I don't actually remember what was particularly on that song. Um, but a couple of songs that sort of came to mind that they could have been on that song. One would be Secret by Orchestral Moon. Oh, oh yeah, dark. love that song. ABC, which it's this like, maybe it wasn't on that, it, but it's like, it's just this like silly boppy electronic drums. And then it opens out into this longing thing at the end. Like, I feel like I liked music that had a really great beat and also a lot of longing. <laughs> to a lot of like downtown New York avant-garde music, like John Cage and Laurie Anderson and mm. um, that's it, Philip Glass. Who was um, the high school teacher who you think had the greatest impact on you or influence on you? Yeah, so many, so many. Um, of course, John O'Connor and Dr. Wong and Nancy Spencer and Chris and Julian Bull, but I have to say John Gray. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun for me to ha- get a chance to see him occasionally in Portland. He lives really mm-hmm. close to that- us and we have a house in Portland and he lives very close to us. So it's very cool. That's great. Yeah. Okay. What was your favorite hangout spot? Your house, Jessica, was one. Um, I, um, I, I mean, I, I wasn't really around that much because I was down at the university. So I was down at UNM. I was at the frontier a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I remember really clearly walking back and forth um, on the quad and it was like, it was so beautiful. I remember just quickly, um, in 10th grade, we had Spanish right after lunch and poor Mr. Seymour couldn't get us to shut up because we all just wanted to like hang out and talk to each other. And so finally he threw up his hands and said, fine, talk as much as you want, just do it in Spanish. <laughs> and after that, we would walk across the quad still gossiping in Spanish. I love it. Was it. Great. It's probably how you learn Spanish better anyhow, let's face it. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. If you can gossip in a foreign language, you're basically fluent, so it's good. <laughs> 
Um, do you have a high school regret? I have some. Um, I wish that I had been more vulnerable and maybe more aggressive about learning how to improvise so I could play with mm. some of the other great musicians mm. that are around. Um, I, I really had this feeling that I had to be perfect if I played and that anything I had to play, I had to play as well as music that I was practicing and, and mm -hmm. doing that. And I think that if I had said, you guys, what you're doing sounds really amazing and I just don't know how to do it. Will you let me sit in and be really awful and sort of teach me? I think they would have been really generous and welcoming and wonderful about it, but I just didn't, I just didn't do that. So if you could go back to your high school self and say something, whisper in your ear, something about the future, what would that be? Hmm. I think I would have really liked knowing that I was going to record an album that Bennett Passer was going to produce. <laughs> Fun. Um, it's amazing. Since, yeah, I mean, because we were such, I mean, we weren't really rivals. He was a jazz pianist. I was a classical pianist, but I didn't even think we could collaborate. Um, I think I would have been really exciting to know that there's going to be an explosion of interest in women composers and that I will get great joy out of that. Um, I would have liked to say, you'll enjoy improvising in your life. Get started on that earlier. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Okay. Last question. You've actually had a chance to okay. think about this maybe, but what would be the title of your high school memoir? I'm going to give this one to John O'Connor who gave me a nickname that I hated at the time. Um, he called me the big swig and I, it just like, it made me feel like the Venus of Willendorf who was an alcoholic or something like it was the worst. It felt awful, but actually I do feel like I was really drinking in a lot of experience then. And I also feel like being in our community allowed me to not feel like I had to make myself small. Like it really made all of, I hope all of us, but it made me feel like I could grow and and like, it was okay to work really hard and want to get better. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with the big swing. I love it. That's wonderful. That's such a great ending <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> I love it. So good. And I just want to say it's been such a joy. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.